Everything's just on the cloud these days. I, um, personally, I just put all of my social security, credit card information on the cloud, <laughs> and I think that that is uh, the way of the future, that if we just put everything on the cloud, we don't have to have anything anymore. Sips beer. That's, um, that <laughs> that's my philosophy of the week. Welcome to Use Case. I'm Austin Weber. And I'm Clinton Walker. And today our topic is automation and implications and where it's going to take us in the future. Yeah, it's a decidedly less techie episode, but I think it'll be interesting nonetheless, especially since a lot of automation is being led by the field, you know, that we talk about. Right. So let's start with uh, Get Trendy. Um, uh, I'll go ahead and hit mine first. Sweet. Mine's a little bit less interesting. Um, <laughs> so if anyone's familiar with VLang... Uh, because that's the name they have to go by, because it's V as in Victor. It's a single letter, which we found out now is a horrible idea, and it makes everything you do on Google. But anyway, um, Blang just released a repository called Gitly, which is supposed to be a GitHub GitLab alternative. Um, you know, ever since Microsoft bought GitHub, Microsoft's been acquiring a number of things, um, and also Bitbucket's owned by a major company. Uh, people have gotten really... Uh, on par about, oh, we want something that's more distributed, less company-oriented, things like that. So V actually just released Gitly, which is uh, basically an alternative written in V that's supposed to be very lightweight because V has this whole narrative about being completely lightweight. Uh, if I remember correctly, I don't have it directly in front of me, but the entire V language compiled falls together uh, about one megabyte, it's an incredibly lightweight language that's supposed to support uh, that full functionality you want, concurrency, things like that. It's supposed to be production ready with uh, minimal code and minimal overhead compared to alternatives. So that's its whole narrative. That is what it's looking to do. And they just released this. It was actually written, I believe, previously, and they just now released it under the... Uh, under the platform of this is something written in V and I think they're trying to take off their production ready platform. So they're trying to push themselves more as like, look what we can do with this. This is actually good code and yeah. it has very low overhead, which is their big thing. It looks like a less cluttered GitHub. <laughs> it's definitely gotten cluttered. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah. So that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So I think that, um, really what they're trying to show with this. It isn't exactly trending uh, for Get Trendy, but I think it's trendy in the uh, hipster kind of way <laughs> where uh, considering that hardly anybody looks, has looked at this repository yet, uh, it's it's a very cool idea. And V, I think V will be successful in their uh, we are lightweight but production ready uh, narrative that they try to pull because it, it does seem to be that their language has become very good at that. You heard it here first. Uh, VLang is the future. Uh, VLang is the future. Uh, <laughs> C less than V. There we go. All right. And uh, for my pick, um, we're going to talk about Comet. Comet is an MVU implementation um, for C Sharp. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I say that it's an MVU implementation in C Sharp. I actually disagree with that statement. Mm -hmm. um, it's closer to MVVM. It's, it's, it's like Swift UI. Um, mm -hmm. It's... it's no longer using a markup language to write your UI. So it's C-sharp code, declarative C-sharp code UI. And then um, 
They say it's in MVU because they do sort of model view update, but there's some things behind MVU um, that they just don't do. MVU is a message-based system. There's no messaging. Mm-hmm. MVU is um, the model is never actually uh, altered because it's functional, right? The model is updated and a new model is created when we make those updates. That, that doesn't happen. Right. Um, and in fact, some of the things that in, in, that Comet does encourages more of an MVVM style thing where some of your um, maybe off UI thread actions, some of those async actions and things like that might actually exist in the model, which is not how MVU works. Right. That's, again, closer to MVVM. So um, it's a really cool repository. It does show uh, this, the person, uh, I think his name is Clancy, um, who's, wor- who's working on this uh, is actually going to be part of the implementation of MVU in the future version of Xamarin Forms, n- retitled .NET MAUI. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting in that it does show where Microsoft is headed. Hopefully they get some feedback on this from the actual MVU community because mm-hmm. um, I've seen at least a couple of people in the, the F-sharp community say like, yikes. They they uh, right. hopefully hopefully this is not what ships because it's going to redefine what MVU is because right. Microsoft has such a big platform, right? And, and F sharp uh, the F sharp community <laughs> like any functional community, right? They are very big about purity and yep. they're very big about doing things the correct way from the functional yep. standpoint. And that that does as soon as you defy that, especially if you look at the the Haskell community, they are the worst. Um, <laughs> As soon as you defy, defy the pure functional outlook on things, this, the community starts to worry that, well, if you don't offer an option that is purely functional, then right. we're not really doing functional programming. Right. And that, I think, that turns into an yeah, issue. I think the concern is that, that the term MVU is going to lose some of that purity. And right. I, I don't blame them for that uh, because I was confused when I first looked at this. I, I've done MVU and F-sharp. And so when I first looked at this, I didn't have a super strong understanding of what MVU was, but it didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel like what I was doing in F-sharp. Um, and so it's a it's more of a hybrid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really, really neat. It looks super clean. I personally would rather do this than deal with XAML, uh, just because there's a lot of ceremony in writing your UIs using mm-hmm. XAML and bindings and all this stuff. And mm-hmm. this is like... It's a bunch of Lambda expressions, and it's right. real clean and crisp and easy to read. So right. as soon as you start uh, burning down that boilerplate and you start trying to turn things, especially from the uh, functional standpoint of define everything as very simple operations and make everything simpler and make it make it into something that's like, oh, wow, look, we can just read this and kind of follow along with what's going. Uh, breaking down that, that boilerplate does make code much more readable. It makes it much more easy to follow logically but yeah. it, it is definitely a semantic step yeah of how are you going to make it function just as well how are right. you going to make it function better and that, that's yeah. definitely a step for my uh, microsoft yeah so um i mean anyway i'm not going to to you know spend too much time complaining about it it is a really neat project i'm just excited that microsoft is really looking at the possibility of other architectures being first-class citizens, uh, they've pushed MVVM for so long. And MVVM is good about a lot of things, but it d- does have a lot of boilerplate. Right. And so uh, I'm just, I'm interested in it. I thought it was really cool. I stumbled upon this repository, and then while reading through the issues, realized that the author works for Microsoft, specifically is working on the on the MAUI team, mm-hmm. and is planning to use this as a springboard for the official implementation. 
uh, and that's when I realized that in all their demos, they're running Comet. They're not running. They don't actually. They aren't actually using .NET Maui and uh, and their official implementation. All the demos they did for build used Comet. So I thought that was really funny. Okay. Um, yeah. So neat repositories. Um, it's very cool. Let's get into the meat of it. Let's right. talk automation. Automation. Scary automation. So, uh, I think so. There's a lot you can say about statistics and numbers in uh, statistics and numbers in uh, automation. So when you break down what the future looks like, which is the biggest discussion in automation of like where right. are the jobs going, where are uh, where are developers going in the future when we get computers to write code? And there's some really good examples of computer-written code that says that that is, that is not going to happen <laughs> anytime soon. Um, uh, if you want to check if a number's even, um, return an even number. Um, <laughs> that's really bad AI, but that's where we're at. So uh, we can talk about statistics. We can also talk about like what are the implications in different job fields of if we are automating things more as software developers, does that automate software developers? Does that automate other job fields? And what do we do about the jobs that are displaced? Yeah, and I think that is a really important conversation to have, specifically more on what happens when the jobs are displaced. I, I think so much of the time is spent arguing over semantics of like whether or not the end result of automation is more or less jobs. And historically speaking, and we can't, you know, we can't always say that what happened in the past will continue to be true for all eternity, but historically speaking, the end result of any autom automation has been more jobs net. Mm -hmm. But I think too often that, that kind of leads the discussion away against what do we do in the short term because jobs will be lost, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then also there's the discussion of like, like you said, are we are we automating jobs away? Are we complementing existing mm. workers? Are we making people more productive? Um, you know, and both both of those things I think are true. The last things you said of are we taking jobs away from people or are we complementing what they do? I think both of those are true. Oh sure, and it entirely depends on what field you're talking about and entirely depends on in what context of a factory worker. Yeah. As a factory worker, I don't think I want to, uh, hand bundle springs. I think having a machine that bundles the springs for me and puts them under the correct pressure to get that millimeter precision spring to come out is much better than having someone sit there and do it themselves. When you look at factories, uh, from the, especially twenties to the forties era, if I remember correctly, and also the late 1800s, um, Kids would be in factories doing things in looms, doing things right. in very dangerous scenarios uh, because they had tiny hands and their tiny hands worked better. And that was an incredibly dangerous type of job to have. Now we automate those types of things. Uh, as soon as something becomes impractical or logistically, we don't have people who can do things to the precision we need, we automate it. That's, right. that's the common thing we do. Right. And... That has turned out to be, safety-wise, a net positive result, I believe. Right. As soon as you find a better way to do something, precision-wise, you do it better. Cars used to be made by hand. That's scary because <laughs> now cars are made by machines, and we see that as fatalities drop and injuries rise, it does have a net positive gain. Right. Um, but does that have a net positive gain to the common factory worker overall? That is definitely 
debatable right. as to the type of people doing the jobs. Uh, when we look at, um, I'm doing a I'm doing a good monologue right now. <laughs> as we look at the the opportunities we give the workers, that falls into a very important piece of how do we keep jobs from falling. When you look at the opportunities provided to an unskilled laborious job, as in we have an unskilled worker in a position that can easily be replaced, such as in the old factory lines during the era of Ford and Rockefeller, especially, when someone's doing a very manual job that could be done with more precision by a machine and we replace them, what do we do with that person? Right. Well, there's two options. Either you throw them away, which from a very... Uh, capitalist standpoint <laughs> is actually a waste because you have someone who's talented in that in that position. Uh, they understand the position because they might have worked in it for 15 years, so they understand it. And the other option is to retrain them and try to teach them how to follow in uh, helping that new position exist and how to maintain that new right. position. And that is a very important aspect. Yeah, uh, And I think largely we agree... Um, that it's kind of the, it ends up being the, like the responsibility of like governments and businesses to figure out what to do with those people. Right. Um, and I'm not trivializing that, but like, that's a different discussion from like, you know, all the jobs are going to go away. Right. And that's the thing like this, not to pick on Andrew Yang, but this like vision of the future in which like no one works. Right. Doesn't seem real to me. Um, it's it's highly utopian, right? Because not everything can be automated, and what we've experienced is that automating only we're, humans are iterative. When we automate something away, we then have more time to spend figuring out how to do something else. Right? We always do that, and so you know, like you said, as factory jobs have, as manufacturing jobs have taken incredible hits over the years, mm-hmm. what have we done? Well, kids now spend years of their lives being educated, right? right. That didn't happen before. It didn't have to happen before because there were tons of labor-intensive jobs that required zero education. You could step down on the floor the very first day, hopefully not chop your thumb off, right. and roll. And and so what we, what we do is transition how we go about building up those careers. And so is there a possibility that somewhere down the line we have figured out how to automate away everything? Maybe? Maybe. But it's not in our lifetimes. <laughs> I have heard the perspective that um, I guess uh, this is this is somewhat of a biased perspective too. That at w- a certain point in a utopian society where nobody works, the only people who would have to really do anything would be researchers, people who are ha- operating a super high academic level of right. how do we make our utopian so- utopian society better. That would be a great outcome. Assuming that you have some way to keep people displaced from doing nothing. Right. And I think that's where you have a lot of uh, fall apart in that utopian outlook, which is unfortunate, but incredibly true that humans get bored and there has to be some way to preoccupy them. Even if we had a fully automated society, no one would be satisfied with that. Yeah. Even if there was no... There was no possible outcome where everything was bad because everything's so highly automated and everything's done for you. People would be so disruptive of that because they would have nothing to do. Yeah, and I think the funny thing is that 
parts of that utopian society have have in some ways come true over the years. Mm-hmm. There is m- more historically, and I know people. There is an argument currently about whether or not forty a forty hour work week is acceptable and whether we should cut that down. That's a whole um, other argument. That's a whole other argument. <laughs> but what's funny about that argument is that historically the number of hours an individual works in a week has decreased as automation has happened. Right. We have more free time now than we ever have. Right. Now, does that not mean that I may want more free time? <laughs> yeah. I could use some more free time. But you know, it's it's funny because parts of that are true. We do get more free time as automation happens. We do. You know, and I think that is another thing that's contextual as to what we talk about what the automation is for, too, right? So when we talk about farmers and factory workers, those two positions are very interesting in how far automation has come that a farmer does not individually go through a field and pick crops. You don't have workers who individually go through a field and pick crops. Uh, we've gotten to the point where we utilized uh, technology to make sure that, well, now we have farming equipment that is so advanced that the the parts of maintaining a field of crops is so far past what it was of just human means that you apply certain things to it, you dust it with certain things, you roll out certain machines on tractors to pick them up and plant mm-hmm. them, it is entirely different than it used to be. And a farmer used to individually have to spend the majority of daylight to to keep a farm maintained, which is still somewhat true, but also we've scaled it up so much to the human population, which is, again, another discussion of human population. It's also the number of farmers. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like It's not just that one person has to spend literally all of their daylight doing this. At At a given time, it may have taken you know, 20 people all day to do that same work. Right. So, And now you have so many individual farmers with... Right. Uh, we need more farmland because populations grow. Mm-hmm. And you ha- individual people are now able to ma- maintain so much land at a single time that automation became entirely necessary, which we saw previously in most countries. Uh, historically, automation became necessary when factory workers and... Uh, industrialization of different par- different parts of the country, uh, especially the United States, and different parts of other countries became to the came right. to the industrialization age. That it was the only step forward. It was the only way to make things more efficient right. than just having more people do it. You had to find a new way for it to work. And uh, Ford was a very important figure in that. Of well, we have people doing different jobs. We have people doing things uh, in a different way every time they do it. Let's take individual people, put them on a large assembly line, have them do the same task over and over. And that human trait parallels what we see in automation now, that uh, it became uh, individual machines who had very specific tasks to to replace those very specific people that if this person was the, I don't know why I keep using springs, but if this person was the spring roller, now there's a machine that specifically rolls right. springs, and we advance beyond that to where in the Tesla factories, we have machines that do multiple jobs. Right. So now we have a single arm that has multiple pieces that can do multiple jobs at once, and that has increased our efficiency. And that's a question of, 
efficiency is actually replacing more people because we have such better machines and as technology grows, it's only going to get worse that we need even less people to do one job because we have two technicians for this hydraulic arm that does 50% of the assembly for a car at this certain point. Right. And that gets it. There are some different kinds of automation, right? Right. So we've got like what you're talking about with these, you know, um, you know, machine per job, right? That kind of automation is kind of fixed, right? Mm -hmm. If the parts change, if the job changes, the machine has to change. Right. That's a really hard thing. You know, it's 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 inflexible, right? right? It's it's there's a there's a barrier there. What you're talking about with um, with the with the Tesla is a little bit more like um, like a programmable automation, right? Right. If things change, maybe the machine has to change, but maybe we can just kind of change what it's doing, right? Right. So that's re, that's that reprogrammable and and. As we're moved through these stages, you see there's like different effects. Whereas like the initial stage of automation is pretty hard, right? It's mm-hmm. pretty inflexible, and it replaces individuals. Programmable automation then starts to replace multiple individuals, right? right? Or or augment the positions of multiple individuals depending on the type, depending on the depending on the circumstances, um, and then you get through to the final stage which is this flexible automation, which is like, you know, artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. right? Or just like your thermostat that like learns that like you keep changing it to 65 every time you come home for work. And then like mm-hmm. one day you come home from work and it's just like 65 and you're like, oh. Thank you, Ness, for tracking what I do with my thermometer. Exactly. But that kind of stuff is, it's a form of automation, Right. right? Um, and, and that has advanced us a lot, is right. uh, smart devices. <laughs> and that's a very, uh, I almost call it a misnomer, because it's not exactly smart devices. It's uh, tracking your mammal brain uh, <laughs> patterns, really, more than anything. Uh, but it's very true that with the advances we've seen in smart devices, IoT, which is the Internet of Things, which is awful, but that's a, that's a different topic. Um all these things are just tracking patterns and tracking how we do things. And that, that can be very true for automated machines, too, in, in, in a general sense. Right. That automated machines are really just, okay, we have a pattern of things we do and we change it a little bit. Or we recognize that it's changed a little bit from last time. We start to change a little bit more. That's a very true thing for automation in a lot of levels, that the Internet of Things, smart devices, it's really just recognizing patterns. Uh, statistics is a huge thing in AI because... That's all you really need to identify what a person's doing or identify their right. habits is statistically analyze what they're doing and determine if like, oh, well, they do this every single day. Well, I'm just going to start changing my temperature automatically. That's yeah, very and, easy. And there are other things like um, that are a little bit harder, I think, to classify. Like um, like my, my car. My car has uh, a fancy new feature called uh, adaptive cruise control, mm-hmm. right? And it just, it's a, it's a following mechanism, right? It'll never go uh, so fast as to hit the person in front of you. Mm-hmm. If you set it to 65 and the person in front of you is doing 60, you'll do 60 mm-hmm. until you move around them. And I don't know the exact implementation of that, but my guess is that it's not really um, reprogrammable automation. It's probably actually that f- in that flexible category of where they train this 
series of sensors to figure out what it what is a car right. and what is not and what to follow and what to not. Right. Um, and my guess is it's probably also continuously learning on real time data. Right. Um, it, this the similar mechanisms exist in you know Teslas um, that allows them to do their um, you know auto driving and yeah. the full self driving they come out with that's like oh here's stop signs here's red lights right which is very very hard oh yeah for sure um, those are hard problems to solve and the thing is is that they're hard problems to solve they're hard problems to solve well mm-hmm. and it's hard to get consistency and that's why what you'll see right now in the the most frightening realm of automation, which is AI. And mm-hmm. really, really what we mean is machine learning um, is that like these machine learning algorithms that we create are really good at very, very specific things. Right? Right. They're good at very, very specific things. You might be able to get them with high accuracy, able to detect if a picture is a person. Right. And that's that, uh, <laughs> especially the level of what what people often like to call black box learning. Mm-hmm. Of we're going to keep feeding this information until it has a certain percentage of uh, true positives. I think that's the word I'm looking for. So it doesn't throw false negatives too much. Of like, wow, that that right. apple tree looks like a face. And it doesn't throw too many false negatives of like, well, no, that's not a person at all. That's, right. that's a tree. Um, as soon as you get to that point, especially with cameras, cameras are probably the most interesting part of uh, machine learning and recognizing and implementing faces into video. That's probably the scariest part is implementing faces into video, such as the uh, taking a, a piece of video and and changing the person's face which oh, is right like the, yeah the deep fake stuff deepfake. yeah deep fake <laughs> which is a very strange name but uh that's very interesting that you can take a video of someone uh map what a face looks like and then change it that right. is another area of automation that i guess is kind of away from what does it do to jobs and is more as it's well, and but you say that, but the funny thing is, is like that can take away the kinds of jobs we would typically think of as being relatively safe from automation. You think about like an actor, right? right. Um, well, if I can just like take footage of like this person, Star like, Wars is a very good example, right? And then like just like decide like, cool, I'm just gonna like throw that in here, or even I've got a billion pictures of this actor. Uh, cool. Let me see if I can like deep fake that actor in this video. Right. Like that could take away jobs. Right. right. That that and that's it permeates everything. But at the same time, um, the technology is not inexpensive enough at this particular moment for that to be something that would be worth it in most cases. Right. Well, we look at mocap technology, um, motion capture, often for video games or for implementing um digital creatures into movies is normally mm-hmm. the two the two cases you see motion capture is much less expensive than full animation right because as soon as you pay someone to keyframe an entire long animated sequence of a person moving a certain way it it's actually turns out to be cheaper to capture a real person moving and then overlay a very advanced 
digital analysis of like, what would this look like if it were 50 feet tall? Right. That turns out to be, I believe, less expensive overall, right. which as that advances, it probably becomes uh, a bit more detailed. But uh, there are cases where it only makes sense to start implementing these machine learning capabilities, which is an obvious thing. Um, a, a place that I think machine learning has come into that has become obvious because of how people view it is self-driving trucks. Mm. Now, I want to bring that one up because I think it is the most prominent job that machine learning is currently threatening. And I use really heavy air quotes on that because threatening is a scary word. So self-driving trucks are an interesting topic because out of the majority of states a semi-truck driver is the most common job. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the entire United States as a whole and throughout a lot of the world, it's a very necessary job. Semi-truck drivers are incredibly common. They make up millions of jobs, uh, actual millions among different companies. And what would be the purpose in replacing them? Well, as soon as you start looking at accident statistics and you start looking at anecdotal anecdotal evidence of how people view truck drivers that turns into a question of well it would increase safety and it would cause less crazy accidents and it would mean that the the trucks that are on the road are less dangerous to regular car drivers and that's where you really appeal to that audience of well, most people don't actually drive trucks. It's actually a very small number of people in the overall spectrum. But there's a lot of truck drivers still. Right. And as soon as you appeal to the common person that we're going to make you safer by replacing all of our truck drivers with self-driving trucks, well, that's an interesting topic until you realize that accounts for a, an actual significant percentage of jobs. And the thing is, the thing is, is that I don't know that we need to go the full step this is the part of the conversation that I think is difficult is gauging how quickly we think these things will happen. Mm -hmm. um, right now, self-driving vehicles um, are really, Fine. they're, they're good. They're really good on the interstate. Mm -hmm. They're a little less good on your day to day streets. Right. And I can't imagine, I cannot imagine a self-driving uh, semi truck or 18 wheeler or whatever that, parks itself right that's a very hard question because the I, the total assumption right now from tesla when you look at the assumptions they're making you're gonna have paved roads they're gonna have lines they're not gonna be yep. parking lots for the most part that are just well when you look at a semi-depot it's a giant lot with some hangers that's yeah. really what they all are uh that does not translate well to what am i supposed to do there is no imperative step there that is, okay, now what's my next step as a machine? Yeah. yeah. And and then there's the concept of like I I, I worked um I worked for um I worked for the local school board when I was in high school, basically uh helping them with their technology. But we worked in what was essentially a big warehouse and we would have big computer shipments come through. I I cringed every time a human tried to back an 18-wheeler into that bay. Yeah. It was so tight. It was the tightest bay I've ever seen. 
And there were some drivers who just straight up refused to do it. Mm -hmm. They would just pull around to the front. And that's the thing is like, that's a really, really hard thing to do. It's hard enough to get a computer to drive straight lines and not hit people. Imagine then trying to take that same computer and saying, oh, here's like a really, really narrow um, back lot with a bay that goes down into the ground, right? And so you can't just like, you know, throw it in reverse and yeet on in there because you're going to drop six feet. Right. You know, you have to approach it in a very particular way. You have to be very careful. Um, You have, you know, there are parts of that that machine learning could help with, right? These sensors can help you determine if you are getting too close to X or Y or, you know, how the distance you have between certain things. Those sensors are really, really, really useful. Right. But the computer is not going to be able to use all that information and safely back that vehicle in. It's just... It's just not going to happen, you know. Right. I think a good parallelism, at least from my perspective, about how things have changed in the past fifty-ish years, is uh, airplanes. So when you look at airplanes, ninety percent of a flight is completely automated. Right. And really the only time where an airplane needs to do anything is the point where human intervention is necessary because, well, it's not a straight line anymore. It's not, uh, just, just do it anymore. Like we hit the slipstream and we just go 800 miles and then we land. That is the point where it, it works perfectly fine. And as soon as you adjust knobs and you adjust settings and it's, this is our bearing. This is where we're going. Right. It knows to do that. It's perfectly fine at that because everything's well established and it knows exactly what to do. Also, working in a 3D space, that's probably one of the few instances where it's a little bit easier of, uh, well, planes fly at different heights, so you don't have to worry about crashing right. into each other as much. But right. in that case, uh, I think we can see a similar parallelism with semi-drivers that... Yes, an interstate is a very easy problem. That's why Tesla did it first. That's why Uber's doing it first. That's why they start there because right. it's big. It has very, very predictable incline changes, mm-hmm. uh, very predictable degree changes on how it turns and how it curves. Whereas when I go down country roads, well, there's a sign that says, whoa, this is a, a 95 degree turn. <laughs> okay, so you expect me to stop and turn my car around a corner. Right. That is a very real thing. So when you start with that question of uh, can we change the outlook of jobs like that, that are, well, you drive for 120 miles, well, set it on autopilot, and it goes. Yeah. And then as soon as you have to do something that's more complicated, you can do right. that. And and the reason, so, like, there's a reason we don't just, like, have pilots just on the plane for this point in time where they land and where they take off which right. are not really automated uh, one of those reasons is that that would be hard to do like right. you know getting them off the plane mid-flight or off the plane directly after they've taken off is hard but the other reason is is what happens if something goes wrong in between right we can we can automate these things to be safe in like the 95 percent of cases Right. And and that is a huge boon, right? If that means fewer people dying in accidents, that's great. But we still need humans to intervene because the m- machines are imperfect. Right. And, you know, maybe the human won't always make the right decision, 
Right. But Which, if there's a, if there's a chance that the human might intervene and save everything, then maybe the human needs to be there. And that's I think what what you're kind of getting at with this this analogy with pilots is like you're right. Like n- a large portion of the job a pilot does is now automated, right? But it's the easy part. Right. <laughs> and uh, it's the part where they could like a child could do it. Right. And if we look at the uh, statistics, which I looking at the statistics, there's a lot to go through, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of it comes down to if uh, trucks were automated on the interstate, if they were allowed to do that. Yes. Most of it's very simple. And then you have the guy on the shoulder who doesn't look before he pulls out. Mm -hmm. That is better for a computer than a person. Uh, Backing into a bay is a hard problem. Right. But if you have uh, a predictive computer that can watch a shoulder and say, well, that guy just turned his wheels to the left and he's moved five inches, which a human is, it's hard to lock on that. A hundred milliseconds is a lot of time. And that's as soon as you recognize that something's happened, your body doesn't start moving for a long time. And for a computer, that's much easier. Uh, Those types of situations are where it would save a lot of, a lot of, accidents from happening because from a lot of accidents it is caused by error outside of the truck right but it's a big part of the error inside of the truck doesn't react fast enough to the error outside of right it's it's in any in any large um catastrophe there's always like a series of things that went wrong right it's never like oh well you know x happened and the entire thing exploded right it's like well you know someone decided someone didn't see the truck coming and so they pulled out too soon and then the driver didn't react quickly enough and so he started uh he realized he didn't react quickly enough so he tried even harder to slow the truck down and that caused uh the 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 tail end to start to swing and he made things worse by overreacting right so it's 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 all these other things that happen that cause an accident like that. But if you right. did have a computer, which is, which is acting on these things just a split second sooner and with more information, right? The, the computer might be able to factor in how heavy the truck is at this particular moment, how fast right. you're going, you know, it, it, there are a lot of things that it might be able to factor in like the precise distance between this truck. Right. And the, the technology we put into trucks is, very good. When you look at air brake systems and you look at how advanced trucks have actually gotten GPS systems and everything else, they are highly technological, but that missing factor is human response time. Trucks are complicated. Right. They have a high number of gears, a very complicated way of operating, and they're a hard question. So when we look at airplanes versus semi-trucks, I think our final destination, which is an ominous term for that, <laughs> both airplanes and semi-trucks, um, our final destination is to reach that percent of error that's acceptable because right. less than 1% of airplanes get into accidents. Right. But more than 1% of trucks get into accidents. Exactly. And we viewed that as acceptable because there, there's not really a better way to do it yet. But as soon as there is a better way to do it, as soon as we can have human pilots to watch the automated system, right? Uh, it can be profitable for everyone. Because if we look at airplane pilots, you have points where airplane airplane pilots are allowed to sleep during a flight and they have two pilots because that's a real right. thing. Um, we don't have that for semi-trucks. Uh, we haven't been doing that. Maybe maybe that's the, the real next step 
is uh, two semi trucks, <laughs> two semi truck drivers. But right uh, when you look at that, as we well, we automate the seventeen hour part of the flight because that just makes sense. It it actually helps from most standpoints, safety, profit. Right, and and like we're saying, a lot of these cases you augment the worker, and right. and what we're thinking, what we're seeing in in trucks is probably most likely going to again be augmenting the worker. This truck driver is still going to need to know every single thing they know now. Right, they need to be able to operate the truck. Right, they need to. Because they're going to have to in some instances, right. but if we can make their, we're making their job easier, right. uh, maybe more boring, and but, from a capitalist standpoint, more profitable because they don't have to drive that twelve-hour distance to go somewhere, which right. means less breaks. It means you don't have to rely on the driver to get there the entire time. Uh, from all standpoints, it really does work out that it's right. better for everyone. And I think we see this trend. Uh, the only, the one last thing I'd like to say for sure is that I, this trend exists in a whole bunch of different places. And right. so when people focus on um, on you know, AI and, and automating away these like core jobs, I think they miss a lot of the stuff that's already happening around them. Um, for instance, you know, the, the projects I work on on a daily basis automate the work being done. Mm-hmm. They do. And instead of spending their time doing the thing I just automated, these employees are now doing additional QA on on the things that they're double checking things, mm-hmm. they're triple checking things. They have more time and less stress to do other things, right? And they're catching mistakes in other places because they have less to think about. They can do this work more quickly and move on to the next job. And I think ninety percent right. of the time, that's what we end up doing. Right. I don't really like writing compilers every time I uh, <laughs> write a new program, so. <laughs> that's that's really what it comes down to on like why has Java been so prominent? Well, because it automates things about switching between platforms, backwards right. compatibility. It does a lot of things for you. Automation is the natural step, but it doesn't necessarily mean replacing the demographic. Who and that's is in that. A, that's another thing I think um, as developers we see automation and we, we we see automation come into our lives and we also love automation pretty regularly and we love it. <laughs> that's the thing we love it. There's um, there are things built into Visual Studio now that will watch you as you do th- certain refactorings and it'll say, oh, you keep doing this type of action on this kind of code. Let me just do it for you. Mm-hmm. And like that's a really f- cool form of like machine learning and and application of these same technologies to make my life easier. You mean I was going to spend the next 30 minutes cutting this piece out, moving this over here and and doing this thing. And I did part of that. And the IDE was like, Oh, I see what you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. You're, Oh, you're extracting that particular kind of code into a method. Oh, here's your method. Mm Mm-hmm. Don't waste your time. I fixed it for you. Those kinds of things are super huge. Now, as a developer, I still have to check to make sure that everything works, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't mean that it's done my job for me. It just means that it cuts some time out of it. And now I can spend less time thinking about that refactoring I was doing and I can move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we see these things everywhere. And sometimes it is machine learning and it is AI. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just, you know, Sometimes it's just automation. Sometimes you just find a better way to do something more quickly that takes you less time. Um, and those kinds of efficiencies are awesome 
in most cases. Right. In most cases. <laughs> it depends. For sure. And like that's the thing. I don't I again I don't want to trivialize because there are big concerns here. Um there it, are it's gonna be a very minute issue, but it's gonna be very Well, the people that it will hurt, it will hurt deeply. And we have to be prepared. Again, like I said, they're you know, governments and businesses and we all have to be prepared for trying to figure out what to do when someone's job does go away. Right. Like that is a thing we have to figure out. You know, we do have to, um, you know, we do have to find ways to get these people back into the workforce or else we lose out on their, like you were saying, their, um, their domain knowledge, their expertise, the, the things they've spent their time on. If right. we can't apply that to something else, we've lost. Mm-hmm. So those are for sure big problems to consider. But I think the big scare on the long term of like this like weird dystopia where like no one has a job and therefore no one can eat and like, you know, whatever, I, I, that doesn't seem real to me. Right. You know, that seems um, seems like science fiction. Right. You know. It comes down to uh, do we accept that uh, Asimov's outlook on robots doing everything uh, <laughs> is true or not? Because if it is true, it's all going to fall apart. Because uh, there's no way to fully automate a world where everything goes correctly. Because no matter what parameters you try to define it on, whatever laws you try to make around it, it's going to break. Because there's going to be too many too many times where it doesn't know what to do and it just doesn't work out in the end. Right. And I think that there, there's a whole bunch of different dimensions to that. There's questions that the, um, that the computer, that, that computers and automated systems won't be able to answer. And then I think to some extent, there's also like questions that developers of those systems aren't going to want to answer. When Tesla announced their like um, automated, you know, self-driving stuff, there was this, slew of articles about um you know the philosophy of the uh ai mm-hmm. right would it pick between a grandmother and a small baby if mm-hmm. it had to like that's a question that i don't think tesla is going to want to answer if they do have an answer that uh that's a liability issue <laughs> exactly and so that's why instead what they say is at all times even when it's self-driving you should have two hands on the steering wheel mm-hmm. because they don't want it to be their problem and right. honestly it probably shouldn't be their problem you know like do we want to bake into our our you know our systems these like philosophical questions of like what do you do in a situation like mm-hmm. that like I the, don't the tram think problem so. probably doesn't really fit into the Tesla shareholder <laughs> ideas. <laughs> exactly. So that's what I'm saying. Like, I think there will always be a space for humans. And so long as there is, we're going to have to know about these things. Mm-hmm. If we don't, then like, you know, you end up in this world, especially, you know, you can end up with this paradox of like, okay, well, we have this robot that does this thing, but who fixes the robot? Well, we right. have a robot for that, but who fixes that robot? Well, right. we have a robot for that. What? <laughs> it, it turns into a very complicated issue of who who fixes things, who corrects things, and who who is designs, actually, develops who is the oversight on different pieces overseas. of technology. These are all things that I think, you know, supervising have, and oversight are really big issues. Oh, I think they're they're huge issues, issue. and I think we're going to see that continue to be the case um 
as we get more of these automated systems, because we're already seeing things like automated, uh, you know, resume uh, selection. Mm -hmm. And turns out there's huge amounts of bias in those automated systems. There's Why? bias, ways to cheat them. Because, because the people who developed them were biased. And so if we don't look into that, and say, oh, recognize the bias, and say, well, we should correct for that because we don't want that in our application process, right? Someone has to be looking at these things. Someone mm -hmm. has to be tweaking them, understanding them. We'll always need those kinds of things. And those are maybe higher order thinking kinds of jobs. But I think it's going to be a combination of those kinds of jobs. And like, like we said, like the pilot never goes away. Mm -hmm. Right, the pilot always has to be there to intervene if something goes wrong. It's going to be that combination, I think. Right. So that sounds like uh, a really our conclusion of yeah. Thing things are always going to require human intervention because they really always have. Even in science fiction, they've always required human <laughs> intervention. Yeah. So I I think that's what we can expect to see when we logically can't find a world where yeah. laws always work. Right. Um, so I think that's our episode. Hopefully we didn't uh, bore anyone too bad or whatever. But This was, uh, this was way too uh, philosophical. It was very philosophical. I told, I told everyone at the beginning it's probably not going to be a very techie episode. Probably. And it wasn't, uh, sort of. But anyway, um, uh, as always, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Austin Weber. And I'm at Clinton J. Walker. And you can listen to us on any platform you want. We have uh, Stitcher, Anchor, uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, uh, some whatever there is out there. Uh, all the all kinds of different platforms. There's Spotify, uh, Gojo Rogan, I guess. Um, <laughs> so you can find us at all of those places. Yep. You can also find us and all those links and all that stuff at uh, usecasepod.github.io that's right. our lovely website designed by yours truly right um, and uh, you know if you have any feedback suggestions you hate us whatever love us uh, send us um, an email usecasepod at gmail.com or right. hit us up on twitter at usecasepod we also have the uh, comment sections on the on the website on the website yeah uh, every every single more. every single episode has its own comments as well as the articles the articles I have written some articles the, Hope, the you know the articles are very good those F sharp articles are great they are great thank they you great. thank you all right so everyone remember as always um, computers can't take away your life and the power <laughs> is yours. 